Okay, uh, Matthew 26, 36 to 43. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Seek ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh up unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time, and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Okay, let's uh, pause then. What does this passage tell us about Jesus' death, the nature of it, what kind of death he died? Spiritual death, too. Not only physical, in that his body was broken. I mean, not, not body's broken, but that, um, that he physically died. His heart was broken, but spiritually as well, because the weight of the sins. Okay, okay. Uh, also uh, emotional? Emotional. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We don't, we tend to glide over these words and see them as hyperbole. Uh, in case you don't know what hyperbole is, it's an exaggeration, expression that's exaggerated. Uh, but I see them as Jesus expressing reality here. That he is so sorrowful, so grief-stricken, so broken-hearted that he is about to die. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like we talked about this last week. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. We talked about hyperbole last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, to me, this is a, a very important key text for understanding the atonement because, as I, as I mentioned last time, there's different views of the atonement, some of which are God punishing his son with death and uh, appeasing his wrath uh, through the death of his son. I don't see that here. I see instead an expression of what sin is causing him to go through. The intense emotional grief. And, and remember, <clears throat> if you remember back uh, the landscape that we've traversed in Matthew, uh, every parable where Jesus talks about uh, someone being cast out into darkness, remember? Mm -hmm. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew really highlights that more than any other gospel. So you have this, this emotional state that Jesus describes as what? Gehenna, which is hell, the Jewish version of hell. Now, he uses also... In, the, in, in Luke, in the parable of the rich man Lazarus, he uses the term Hades, which is the Greek mm -hmm. version of hell, uh, to express something a little different. But when he talks about Gehenna, uh, he's talking about the state of people when God gives them up, abandons them to the results of their choice. 
they will be thrown out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need to know a little bit about Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is Greek, the Greek, uh, what we call the Hellenization of two words in Hebrew, Gehenom. And Gehenom, translated, is the Valley of Hinnom. In case you don't remember what the Valley of Hinnom, anybody, anybody remember what the Valley of Hinnom was about? Uh, it's where they sacrificed, uh, like, like their kids. They yeah. The fire, and it was also a trash dump. Yeah, yeah. Ge- uh, the Valley of Hinnom was on the, I believe, the south side of Jerusalem. And uh, it's where they dumped all their garbage. It was, uh, it was a valley. Jerusalem's up on a hill. It's so the hill comes down quite steeply there uh, into a valley. So that's the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, they would dump their garbage over the edge of the wall and into that valley. So it became a place that probably caught fire in the heat of summer quite readily. If, if you know anything about garbage dumps, uh, unless they're maintained and controlled, they have a tendency to burn, uh, spontaneous combustion. I know this because I lived in a, commun- a very small rural community where there was an Adventist academy, and out back behind the Adventist academy, sorry, was a dump, and that's where actually they tra- they dump- we dumped all our trash out there. Um, and occasionally the fire trucks would have to go out there and put a fire out because it wasn't maintained or controlled at all. Uh, so that's the Valley of Hinnom. Well, that's the place where they made, where Manasseh made his sons pass through the fire. It was this Valley of Hinnom. So it became to represent a kind of appeasement atonement. Because why would you make your sons pass through the fire? To appease the gods. Of course, Manasseh didn't just worship Yahweh. He worshipped uh, a lot of other deities, uh, according to the Bible. So he was appeasing whatever god. Uh, but apparently, they also did this to Yahweh. They offered their firstborn children to Yahweh. Uh, Jewish scholars have resisted the thought for many, many years. And, and one of them was Jacob Milgram, who taught at the University of California. And I took a couple of seminars from him, a couple of semesters. And uh, he resisted it and resisted it. In fact, I, I went up to him when we were supposed to be choosing our paper topics and I asked him if I could do Leviticus 20 um, verses 1 through 5 or something where it talks about you shall not offer your children to Moloch uh, as a sacrifice. And he wouldn't let me do it. He just would not let me do it. So that's how resistant he was. Several years, that was in 1987, autumn, first semester I was in the program. In 1997, so 10 years later, meanwhile, archaeologists had found an inscription in Palestine that was written by an Israelite, very clearly Israelite inscription, that said, I offered my son 
to Moloch or as a mole, as, as a mulk. And scholars debate whether you're dealing with a deity, Moloch, or whether you're dealing with a technical term for child sacrifice. It really doesn't matter. The end result is the same. But there's an inscription, and it led Professor Milgram publicly. I, I wasn't there to hear it. I wish I had been. Uh, <laughs> but it led him publicly to, to rescind his views. He, he got up and said, I, I have been wrong. Uh, they really did do that. Uh, because of that inscription. Uh, so, uh, yeah. My question is, <clears throat> by doing this, are they saying that this is sort of a sacrifice that covers in the whole family? The sins and the discretions? Yeah, it's hard to know what the conditions were under which these sacrifices were made. And the reason I say that is because uh, the, the ones who did it the most were the Phoenicians. And we have evidence, textual evidence, as well as actual hard evidence of uh, physical ashes uh, that were found in uh, Carthage, Africa, which had a huge Phoenician settlement, or sometimes we call Punic settlement. And um, they had found these tall urns with uh, ashes of infants. Now, one, one physician, a, path, a pathologist or, or whatever, forensic pathologists uh, tested these and claimed they were all fetuses. I have a very hard time thinking that, um, that they would, they would burn a fetus. You know, that, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and since babies in the womb by a very, very early time have everything that they have when they're, uh, when they're born, they're just not as fully developed, I, I really think these were infants. And... and um, there's letters, there's actual documentation, uh, that letters that they've sent out to uh, people where they had adopted their children out to a village, say, 20 miles away, to protect them, to keep them alive. Why? Because the priests were coming into the home there in, in Carthage and taking children forcibly and offering them as child sacrifices. So we don't know if that same condition existed in Israel or what, but that, that's, something like that is going on. Um, maybe the parents are voluntarily doing it to try to protect their families. Maybe uh, they're doing it for the national good. Uh, it's hard to know. So in relation to Jesus being sorrowful even unto death, how do we... Well, let me, let me move backwards now. Because this became acquainted with a confined form of atonement, this became a view that involved this appeasement of, of deity that involved kind of a, a kind of penal substitutionary right. And, and that's the background against which Jesus then turns that around and says, no, Gehenna is not where God is going to burn you. Gehenna is where you're going to have weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that brings me to the conclusion, and I've studied this out, I've studied the concept of the fire. Uh, fire is an emotional term in the Bible. It isn't just a physical fire. There is that aspect. But when used metaphorically, it is emotional. And so I think the lake of fire 
is an emotional state. It, revelation is symbolic. Uh, so I think the lake of fire is an emotional state. Well, if Jesus died the second death, he died a death of an emotional state. And that's why you don't have fire on the cross. I mean, if Jesus really died the second death, there should be fire, right? And if that's the second death, and, and the Bible indicates it is, it indicates the lake of fire is the second death. Uh, I think that lake of fire is just, it, the, he, the, the wicked are just bathed in emotional agony and, and anger and, and all of those, those states. Uh, and it, it is like a fire that consumes. Yeah, at the same time, the presence of God, he says that he is a consuming fire. Right. So when the New Jerusalem uh, descends and there's a new earth, the wicked try and overtake but, the city, but, the, but they're ultimately destroyed by fire. We have an example of that in Nadab and Abihu, don't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, when the glory of God comes forth, and, and they're still intact. They're not consumed up. They have to take their bodies out in their tunics. Um, so that's a different kind of fire. That's the fire of him who is love. And that fire burns in a different way. And I think still we need to get away from a physical fire, except in the, in the final emotional agony. I do think it is possible for human beings to experience spontaneous combustion. And in fact, it's actually been documented uh, that there is such a thing. Um, usually it's tied to alcohol. Uh, people consuming too much alcohol, getting too close to a fire, and there's some kind of spontaneous combustion there. But there's been other cases where they can't explain it. So At different ages, not just elderly. Right, right. Different ages, yeah. And men and women. Uh huh. Yeah. And children. Mm-hmm. When I when I read this text, something else. Uh, uh, I highlighted something else here. The question here says, "What can we learn from this?" And reading that reading that text, I noted that Jesus he prayed three times the same prayer. So it's, a, it's also a lesson in persistence in prayer as well. You know, he submitted to the will of the Father, but he had to really pray about it three times, mm-hmm. you know. So, and that's the only example of persistence in prayer. We have Elijah as well. Mm-hmm. He prayed for rain in James chapter 5, right? And of course, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Exactly. <laughs> and Jesus tells us in the parable, the widow and the unjust judge to pray you know, not to give up, to keep praying, even if the judge says no. Uh, the, the question is, what does Jesus say about death here? And, and I think that that is highlighted by his soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And that this was a death, and, and this is something else that my friends bring out that I've been reticent to accept. I just haven't seen the light. Maybe this points to it. I'm going to suggest it here. Death isn't something imposed on him. He has to submit to it. And and we're going to come to John eventually. (laughs) Next year maybe. (laughs) Uh, We're going to come to John where Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. So this death is not an imposed penalty on Jesus. It is something he voluntarily takes on himself. And that suggests something else about the final death of the wicked. So what we have is this voluntary submission to death. 
And some of my friends suggest that at the end of the, of the millennium, when the dick, wicked are raised and, and everything, they've seen the whole panorama of the great controversy, they've seen the whole final, the full <coughs> complete display of the love of God in Jesus. They bow and say, just and true are your ways, O the king of saints. Then they rise up and they turn on one another. Their hearts aren't changed. That hasn't brought them to repentance. They simply admit it. And in that process, all that emotional stuff, and, and at that same time, <clears throat> you have the glory of him who is love, which I think is possibly manifested in that whole panorama they have just seen. And that, the realization that God is love, when you have resisted that love and resisted that love and resisted it and hated it, because it's life-giving, it's destructive to you. And that seems paradoxical. But it draws out from them all their anger, all their hate. In fact, I just read this morning uh, in my devotions that when Jesus was before Pilate, and Pilate had, Pilate had him scourged, and here he was just, it, just totally mutilated and scorned and, and derided, and the crowd is yelling, crucify him. And here he was, the picture of peace and love and pity and kindness. Just the epitome of that. And, she, and the, the statement was made that his face was beautiful with that love. And, and, and then the statement was made that Satan was enraged at Jesus' demeanor. When you hate and resist love, love tends to bring out the worst. And, and that's what I see happening in, with the wicked. But at the same time, they will suffer as long as they keep resisting love and refuse to submit to the second death. So this is, this is what my friends, uh, some of my friends suggest, is that the, way, the reason some suffer longer than others, and there does seem to be that, the reason some suffer longer than others is because they resist and they resist and they refuse to submit. And finally they let go. And then they go. And the reason I bring in the second death so much into this picture is because that's what Jesus' death really is all about, isn't it? It's about that death. Um, let's, let's review a little bit. We'll be reviewing this again when we come to Romans. You meant to say uh, they refused to submit to the Lord, not to... You said, what you said was submit to the second death, but no one wants to submit to the second death, right? Well, that's why they, they resist and they resist and they resist. They, they receive the second death, but they don't... Well, Jesus, didn't Jesus have to submit to the second death? For, so that we wouldn't have to die that death. Right. But he still had to submit. And if his second death is if he died in our place if he's our substitute then he is dying the death we should have had to die. Right? Mm -hmm. And that means he died our second death. Yes. And he had to submit. So what we see in Jesus is what we see in the, in the final destruction of the wicked. Mm -hmm. It's the same paradigm. It's the same kind of uh, situation. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a <clears throat> critical deception. Christ has been punished by God and appeasing God. It's, it's a, it, it's a it's horrendous. A, it has to be in place for the world, for Satan to continue the deception. Yeah. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't make sense when you think about it. Yeah. It has to be a deception there. Yeah. And a lot of the world believes that, aside from Christians. A lot yes. of other. Yes. Well, it it is something that actually ties. I don't know that Islam so much believes this, but but Hindus Hindus believe this, and you know it, it's the whole Christian almost the whole Christian world believes it. Um, well, it ties in very well to our discussion last night at uh, Pauline Hall worship. Terry shared with us uh, that you know all the world wanted after the beast, right, in Revelation 13. And it's very true because there's a consequence for wandering after the beast, which we see in the second death as well. And that those are those who have consciously rejected, you know, this three, third angel's message here. Yeah, and, and see, this, this really impacts the third angel's message, doesn't it? The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. How does torment smoke? Well, we think of it as fire. The fire is tormenting them and the smoke of their torment. Yeah, they're tormented by the presence of the angels and the presence of the Lamb. You can translate that Greek by instead of in. But either way, it's really the same end. So uh, let's... um, um, come to the next place, and I don't. We don't want to read this whole passage. So what I'm going to do is pause here and ask you to look through chapters 26 and 27, and ask yourself the question: Where are the places that Jesus' blood is mentioned? Maybe we should just read the verses. I I think I found them for you actually here. So Kim, I'll be your coach. And, and tell you the verses, and that way you don't have to keep looking back and forth to try to find them. So read 26, 27, and 28 first. And as we were, <clears throat> they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink, eat all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Okay, so the next one is, um, well, let's stop with that one and talk about it. What is this blood Jesus shed? See, blood of the new covenant. Blood of the new covenant. And what is the new covenant? Grace. Their laws are, their laws are written on your hearts. Um, uh-huh. A new exodus from, uh-huh. from spiritual Egypt. The, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. But this is the covenant I will make with them in those days, that I will write that I will write their law upon their hearts, and they shall not all say, "Come, let us know the Lord," for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And I will. For, Forgive, remember, see, I will forgive their sins. I will remember their sins no more. I'm, I'm forgetting exactly how that goes. But uh, there's, there's knowing the Lord, there's forgiveness of sin, 
And this is a very different covenant than the one at Sinai when they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And this is from Hebrews 8, correct? Uh, it's also in Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8 is simply quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So that's the new covenant. How does the blood help us to know God? And how does it procure forgiveness? Well, Leviticus 17.11, it's also very similar to Hebrews 9.22, which necessitates the shedding of blood for remission of sins. Why does God need bloodshed to forgive us? Did Jesus die from bloodshed? No. So what is the blood? The life is in the blood. Is it payment? No, it's not payment. uh, It says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many as well. So it is a payment. It is a payment? Who is being paid? It's like symbolically death. It's just like, because there's so many, like, salvation, if you want to call it that, is like so complex that it's like, you, you can't just use like one metaphor for it. So it's like, Paul, Paul and the Bible have so many metaphors for salvation. And I think that's one that they utilize, but yeah, I, I do think that the Bible does make it clear that it's not a payment, so to say. I, I, I'm not sure what the blood means specifically for us. I'm committing sacrilege by saying maybe it's not a payment, but... It's a covering because that was part of, you know, the blood would cover our sins. It, it, it's a transforming, like you were saying, with life. Okay, so it, if it covers our sins, is it hiding them? It's a transforming, like what he was saying. So cover may not be the best the blood, metaphor. Because like in this whole thing, like he's basically reenacting the Passover. And if he is a Passover lamb, the blood, the blood was used to... A substitute. The, the, I was going to say, yeah, the Passover. It's, it's almost like death angel, the death angel came and they said, oh, he was the one who killed. Well, actually, <clears throat> it was that he threw himself over in, in that sense, he threw himself over so that it would pass over. You would not that he, so 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 is he protecting us from the Father? No, he's protecting us from sin. Oh, now that is a different way of looking at it. Yes, and where where, where, do, where can we find the piece? There's a, there's a missing piece here that we need from the Bible. There's Ezekiel chapter 16, which actually alludes to the covering that she's talking about. And it refers to blood as well in that chapter. It's very interesting. Well, don't you, in my mind, because I think this is really a critical issue for Christians in the world, and particularly Adventists, because we're so caught up in this payment plan, that it seems to me like the scriptures are very clear that when there's sin, there has, this results in death. And it's a moving away from God and the principles and so forth. But there has to be something that symbolizes that removal from God and the results, which is sin and eventually extinction. So, so blood becomes that visual aid. In my mind, it's more a visual aid and as in a human form that Christ took on, that visual aid becomes in our mind real palatable and real because it's blood. 
Okay, let, let's go back to the beginning of this because I think it'll make more sense if we Adventists have been extremely persuaded by Hellenistic culture and Western culture to think in, in bits and pieces, sound bites. Uh, so we take scripture apart in bits and pieces and, and, and we put those bits and pieces together and sometimes we fit them together very nicely and other times we botch it. Uh, and And... The key to not botching it is to constantly recognize that there is a storyline. There's a narrative line that we're dealing with and not to forget or forsake that narrative line. So let's go back to Genesis. Genesis uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 16. Tara, you want to read verse 16 and uh, 17. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's where it began. Now, let's go to chapter 3. And Tara, I'm going to ask you to read again. Read verses 1 to 4. Well, read verses 1 to 5. Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you think about this, this is enormous. And we're not going to go through this whole passage. We've done that before. But the woman actually transforms or maybe deforms God's original words uh, by saying, you shall not, either shall you touch it, lest you die. She changes what is a warning into a threat. And so the serpent has her. He knows, you know, she's reduce this to a threat instead of an emphatic cause-effect relationship. And therefore he can say, and here he goes back to God's original words, and he states those original words with one word in front of them, not. Not dying, you shall die. Which is, God's original words is dying, you will die, meaning you will most certainly die. Dying, you will die is a way of emphasizing the, the fact that you will die. And he simply negates it with that not. Not dying, you will die. But then he tells her a truth. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What this suggests is a whole trajectory of lies about God. Now, he he can't be trusted because he's a liar. He, He doesn't really know what he's talking about. And you won't die. And, and sin won't hurt you. And more than that, if it's going to hurt you, it's going to be God who hurts you, not sin. That I lie, he added later on among human beings. So this is the backdrop against which we have to approach this whole concept of the blood. And, and the first time the blood is mentioned is in the story of Cain and Abel. It's not mentioned with the sacrifices. It's mentioned... When God comes down and says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain shoots back, 
Am I my, your brother? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Um, now, this has strong implications in the story because I think I've said this before when we went over Genesis uh, 3 and 4. When, when God says, Where's, when, when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He's using a term for a person who keeps the sheep, the, who guards them. The, the different term for shepherd is used of Abel in the first beginning of the story. It's, it clarifies that Cain is the tiller of the ground. Abel is the shepherd of sheep. To shepherd sheep was to help tend them, to help them graze. And it's always portraying a, a, a portrayal of safety and peace and, and wholeness where the sheep are well fed. The keeper simply guards the sheep, usually a hireling. His job isn't necessarily to feed the sheep as much as just to protect them from predators. Uh, they're just property. They're just what, what have you. And so when he says, am I my brother's keeper? He's saying, is, is my brother a sheep that I have to guard him like the lamb he just slew? There's an implication in that that Cain resented the blood that his brother emitted by slaying the lamb. So when God didn't accept his offering of fruit, he got so angry that when he slew his brother, in essence, he was saying, so you want blood? Then here's the blood of my brother. And this was the first human sacrifice. I'm not alone in thinking in that direction. There's a book called The Sacred Executioner by Kyle Maccabee, Kyle, Kyle Maccabee, who um, suggests that Cain offered Abel as a human sacrifice. Uh, he sees that in the story too. So this is the first instance of blood. And what does God say to Cain? The blood of your brother Abel cries to me from the ground. What is it crying for? Retaliation, vengeance, retribution. Is that what the blood is about? Is, is Jesus' blood to provide retribution for all the blood shed in the world? Jesus, Jesus' blood hate, uh, speaks a better word than that of a bell. Right? I'm sorry? Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that of... I, I was headed there, so you just beat me to it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. in Hebrews, Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews 4. The blood of, uh, of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Why? He let his blood go. He gave it up. And it wasn't him getting back. It wasn't God getting back. It wasn't retribution in the sense of revenge and retaliation and, and all of that. 
It was retribution in the sense of the consequences of sin. So, so taking... You're saying that consequence sin sheds blood. If, if we take it that way, what the blood of Jesus in the New Covenant does is give us the truth about God. The A, that he didn't lie when he said, you will surely die. B, he's not the one killing us. It's sin that's killing us. And that was his original statement. He didn't say, if you eat of this fruit, I will kill you. He said, you will surely die. Not, I will surely kill you. Uh, And C, sin is what leads to death, not God. And therefore, we can trust him. This is all about trusting God, coming back to faith. And that's the new covenant. That's the essence of the new covenant. So where does the forgiveness come in? I have a question here. Why did God decide to protect Cain after he murdered his brother? Well, that's a good question. Which is actually rather forgiving of God after that. What does that suggest? In, in my understanding of the minor and major voice, and, and let me, re, for those of you who have come and haven't heard me say this, there are two voices in the Old Testament. Amen. The voice of God's preferred will, which I consider the minor voice because it's, you hear it less frequently, uh, and the voice of God's, uh, the major voice of God's adapted will to, or acquiesced will to the will of the people. And the, will, the, ma- the minor voice is usually first in the narrative sequence. So this is the first instance of murder. And you know elsewhere in the Bible, you kill somebody, you die. And you have to be killed. Here God protects the first murderer. Seems what does that exile? suggest? It seems like more like an exile. More like what? Like an exile? Yeah, it is more like an exile. It seems to me that what God is saying is my preferred will is not you put people to death for killing because you're just doing to them what they did to you and, and now you're looking very much like them. That's why the flood had to come. Well, the, the earth became filled with violence. Yeah, because it, in a sense, like, isn't violence very, like, it, it's like an, it basically like when, when we commit violence, we only, like when we, when we try to defeat violence with violence, we only add to it, and like, that's kind of like the whole down, downward, uh, downward spiral that kind of happened. Because, you know, like with Lamech, it was like yeah. if 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 Cain is I don't know, if uh, yeah, Cain is seven times that I should be seven you know seventy seven or you know, seven times seventy times you know, something like that, and so it's like you know you have this like increase in in this yeah this the like, escalation absurd, of violence. I think yeah I think that's uh, might be part of the whole thing too. Like well, and I I think that actually that violence did cause the flood. Yeah. That because they, there seems to be a cause effect relationship between blood going into the ground. And the ground not being able to produce, and the ground not being able to do things. You you talk about the butterfly effect. You you know the butterfly effect. When it talks about the flood, actually it says that they they grieved the spirit of God, but the sins that were mentioned before is that they looked upon the the daughters of men. So adultery seems to be the sin that prevailed in that time. Uh, It says that the earth was filled with violence. Because there there is every imagination of the thoughts of the hearts of men were evil continually. Uh, when it, if the earth is filled with violence, there's no safe place. Uh, and you have blood being shed constantly. So that violence sets off a chain reaction 
that results in the flood is, is how I see it. But back to back to the forgiveness. What? How does the blood in a, in a different construct that we're looking at? How does the blood? I just found it kind of interesting. Chapter six, verse seven of Genesis. Mm-hmm. When referring to the flood, God says, "I'll destroy man whom I have created on the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. For I'm sorry that I have even made them." I find that mm-hmm. to be sort of interesting. I. What is it that you derive from that God did it? No, that he's just sorry how far his creation had already fallen. Yeah, there's no mention of divine anger in this. Genesis. No, in the entire book of Genesis. Yeah, Genesis. Have you been listening to me somewhere before? (laughs) (laughs) I do a lot of studying. You do. You uh, must. Wow. With. Um, I'm familiar with, with the kind of uh, theories that you promote, so that's just how I know, because I, I think very similar to you. So that's why yeah, you obviously do. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm hearing an echo here. <laughs> that's great. It grieved him to his heart, that didn't it? Mm-hmm. So the, there, there's no anger here. There's just intense grief. But let's come back to the, the term forgiveness, because we've gone a little bit far afield here. So is the blood also rep- it's representative of the death that we didn't have to die? Yes. As well. And so that's how it represents the forgiveness because we don't have to, if we weren't forgiven, we would have to die that death. You know, that's a, that's a good point. Um, and I think, I think we often put the cart before the horse on this one. We see the death as providing forgiveness for us. In, in the older constructs, mm-hmm. the de- if you appease God's wrath, then he can forgive you, right? What if we turned that on our head? Well, Say, I mean, because God forgave us, the, the us pouring out his blood is the, is, the me- is the means by which he communicates that forgiveness to us. And we can't be forgiven unless we receive it. And it's the death of Jesus that enables us to receive it. Forgive- Does that work? Forgiveness has always been on God's... Right. So it's his way of communicating. It's a demonstration. Okay. It gets as Jesus is shedding his blood. What does he say? Father, forgive them. So it seems to me that that is a communication, and I've long. I'm I'm toying with something that I'm I'm not prepared to die for. <laughs> Some things that I say I'm, I'm prepared to die for. But I, I don't, when I'm not sure of my grounds, I'm not prepared to die for it. Uh, this is one thing I've been toying with in the parable of the prodigal son. The father goes out to intercede with the older brother. Is it possible? And, and the Bible nowhere says that God is reconciled to us by the death of Jesus. It says we are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. And if we are the ones being reconciled, are we the ones being appeased? Because appeasement is a form of reconciliation. That would really turn it on its head, wouldn't it? Well, it says that he has reconciled the whole world into himself. Right. So this is a, this is a very different way of looking at this. What, what I'm driving for is an experiential approach to Scripture as opposed to a theoretical approach. Approach to scripture. 
To so, me, this has to be, become more than a symbol. It has to become real in order to have any effect on me. So, so if you have a God that's created principles, and the principles are consistent and not confusing or arbitrary, then he has to follow the principles. So if I've gone against the principles, how do I get back to the principles? He can't change the principle. So he has to some way bridge this back. Yeah. Create it. Create uh, from from the way you you're talking. Create a, a paradigm that we can shift to, and, and it has to be a series of paradigms really that of that mediate from where we are to where he is. Right. Because he can't change his protocol, his principles, right. his design, and if he. He crucified Christ to punish. That would go against his principles. It would. Of who he is. It would. It, it's at the cross. The Bible says that wrath and mercy meet. That grace and justice become one. And it is not that God has to change anything at the cross. It's always. They've always been one. They've always met. But sad? we split them apart. Satan, God, is to split them apart and see them as antithetical. Love versus justice. Love, but you've also got to have justice. Uh, mercy, but you've also got to have wrath. Uh, no, they're one. And the cross demonstrates that oneness. Um, since we have only two minutes left, I'm going to close with this. I saw this one night. I, I do a lot of thinking <laughs> much of the time. And I came to this one night, and it was total life-changing. That I felt like I could forgive the whole world afterwards. If you look at wrath as God giving people up, which is how it's defined in Romans 1, God giving people up and letting them go. If you look at it that way, what is forgiveness? I guess allowing you to do what you want. It's it's letting go. It's letting go any resentment, anything. Letting go the sin that you've done against me. Letting it go. Letting it go. Letting it go. Same thing. That's what it literally means. Like, does it forgiveness literally mean? In the, in Greek, in in the Greek, it doesn't mean that in the Hebrew, but it does mean that in the Greek. It means to let to leave to let go. So that there's no difference between forgiveness and wrath. The difference is with the recipient. Is it the same word in Latin, to pono, to lay aside? Yeah, virtue. This, what this means is that the only difference is the person who receives the forgiveness and the wrath. It's their choice what they do with it. Um, going back to the um, prodigal son analogy. Mm -hmm. So because we've fallen into sin we wouldn't have understood his forgiveness unless he demonstrated it. Because God, with the way he works, is with the creation story. He said it, and it happened. And so if he said, I forgive you, we wouldn't have understood that. When we fall into sin, what's the first thing we do? We blame. Mm -hmm. It's your fault. It's his fault. Judge. And, and what's the next step? Retaliation. Anger, murder, and so our, by nature, 
we do not forgive, how can we understand something we by nature don't know? Mm. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, so even before he died, he'd already... Forgiven us. Yeah. Okay, let's have her closing prayer. Father, we ask that in our process of attempting to understand Scripture in vital, meaningful, and living ways, that it will become so real and so experientially uh, sensible that we may grasp it and not only grasp it, but let it transform us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.